Okay, we're in Colossians again, so please turn to Colossians chapter 2, and I'll read verse 11 through 15. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. As I was preparing for this uh, message, I was uh, reminded of one of the more memorable characters in the Bible, and one that it's good to put yourself in his shoes often, Nicodemus. And in the flickering firelight on one night, he had a long one-on-one interview with the Lord Jesus. And you can read about it in John 3. I won't uh, turn there. But uh, for Nicodemus, he wanted this to be a spiritual conversation. He wanted to benefit from it. He was expecting to benefit uh, from it. And it went off to a rotten start for him. It went off the rails uh, right away. Nicodemus would have been pleased had Jesus said to him something like, Nicodemus, you've come for some spiritual benefit and you need to dig down deep within yourself. Uh, you've been running fast toward God and you need to run faster. Uh, you've been trying hard and you need to try harder. You need, uh, you're, you're desperately in need of some spiritual polishing. And you need to be much improved. I think, I think Nicodemus would have appreciated that. I think he would have been challenged by that. I think that would have been something more along the lines of what he was expecting. I think he would have gone away thinking it was time well spent with this uh, teacher who's obviously from God. But instead of saying anything like that at all, the Lord said to Nicodemus right away, looking right at him, you must be born again to even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, what you need is to become an entirely different person. You're like a building, and the Lord didn't say this, but this was the gist of what he was saying. You're like a, a building that just can't be salvaged. It has to be condemned. It has to be knocked down, and you have to start over from uh, scratch. And not only that, but that whole project of demolishing and building again is not within your reach. You can't do it. You can't even grasp it. You can't even begin it, uh, Nicodemus. And so we don't know the tone of voice. It's not told to us in scripture, but it, I'm sure it was a, with a mixture of frustration and surprise and outrage and shock and disgust um, and indignation, a sense of wasted time and of trust betrayed that Nicodemus said, how can these things be? What, what, what are you talking about? What, what, this is not at all what I was uh, expecting. And then the Lord went on to, it was not the only thing that the Lord said to him, uh, but the Lord went on to, to tell Nicodemus, you become another person by despairing of yourself and looking to the power of another. And so he told him about Moses lifting up a serpent, an ugly serpent on a pole and the Israelites who were um, bitten by the snakes and had a death sentence upon them, looked at this ugly emblem, they looked and lived. 
And um, Nicodemus would find out in time that that's what he was to do. He was to see on in, in Christ hanging on the cross his true condition, that he needed to become a totally different person and then live because of what he saw there. So uh, the answer, the way to be born again is to look to Christ and live. And when you look to Christ and live, you never stop. You look and the new life comes from him and it continues to come from him as you look to him and not from yourself. So this morning, if we can get through all of this, uh, we have five astonishing blessings, five astonishing blessings that the Colossians forgot that they needed, forgot that they needed. And the astonishing blessings are circumcision, burial and resu- resurrection, life from the dead, forgiveness and cancellation of a legal bond. And then fifth is public triumph over dark powers. All five of these astonishing blessings, and this is said over and over again in this passage, are in him, in Christ, and with Christ. They belong to uh, him. And so these five astonishing blessings are only found in Christ. They're found with him, and they're found nowhere else. Now, I've I've given you a a list of the five things that Paul uh, goes through, circumcision, burial and resurrection, public triumph, etc., And in giving these blessings that are found only in Christ, I think Paul pressed his descriptive powers to the limit. These descriptions are almost strange and fantastic as he uh, speaks uh, of them in this passage. So that even an enemy who didn't believe that these things were true would admit that Paul must have had a wonderful imagination to come up with all these blessings that are found in Christ and describe them um, in this way. And that's because all five of these astonishing blessings take you outside of yourself and transport you somewhere else. Or better, they transport you to someone else. They're all found in him. They transport you away from yourself and to Calvary and to Christ before bringing you back again to yourself. And I think this is why or gives a a hint as to why Paul was so concerned about what he called vain philosophy and empty deception, things that are according to the elementary uh, principles and the traditions of uh, uh, men. He was concerned that the Colossians had adopted something, philosophy, uh, for Christian living that put Christ on the sideline and take you into yourself. Instead of into Christ, they've forgotten uh, Christ. And that's why Paul is so concerned about something that might seem to an outsider just a, a subtle difference, something hard to grasp. Why is so Paul concerned uh, about what's happening in uh, Colossae? What is Paul so uh, excited about? But to Paul, this wasn't a subtle difference, the philosophy that they were adopting versus what is found uh, in Christ, but the uh, exact opposite. To find blessing not by reaching down within yourself first of all, but by reaching out towards um, Christ. And so this was, uh, to Paul, this was a five-alarm fire. Um, Paul said, I don't want the philosophy that the Colossians have subtly adopted to spread beyond this little town, to spread into the sister cities, the two sister cities in the, the same valley, and then to spread further to all the uh, the churches. It needs to be stopped now, even though I've never met these people. And so he writes this uh, letter to them reminding them of the blessings found only in Christ. 
only in Christ. To grow in him, they must continue to find these blessings only in Christ. So he reminds them that they needed these five astonishing blessings that are found only in Christ and not uh, in themselves. And so this message is, I think, perfect for the Lord's Supper and for our observance of the Lord's Supper that we're preparing for where we remember Christ. In fact, the Lord knew that you needed a regular reminder that your Christian life, all of your Christian life is found in him, only in Christ. You needed a vivid reminder. In fact, not just to be told by a preacher so that you, you might be listening or not, but something to put into your mouth, something to put in your hand, something to taste, something to touch to remind you of what you have in Christ. So at the Lord's table, we find what Christ promised to be for you. And as you're taking of the Lord's Supper uh, this morning, perhaps think of just one of these uh, astonishing blessings, one of these five that's found only in Christ. Or if you can, think of all of them together. That would be even better to think of all these things that are found in Christ. That's what's being pictured. That's what's being promised to you at uh, the Lord's table. And the first one is circumcision. The first one is circumcision. Um, maybe, well, let me read it. Let me read it. The first one. It's uh, verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Maybe circumcision is not something that you've thought about recently, (laughs) or maybe it's not something that you thought you needed to come to church uh, this morning to hear about. (laughs) Um, The, uh, Circumcision is not something, if you go to a self-help section for how to become a better you, you probably won't hear about it. They probably won't have a chapter on uh, circumcision. I sincerely doubt it. So why is Paul talking about circumcision of all things? And why does the Holy Spirit want you to hear about circumcision this morning? Well, if the Colossians were like most of the churches, um, they were made up of Jews and Gentiles um, at this time. The males among the Jews would be all circumcised, for sure. Um, and the males among the Gentiles um, would not, would not have been circumcised. So you might say, well, maybe the Colossians, they had taken their eyes off of Christ. They had gotten off track. Maybe they were promoting the Old Testament Jewish rite of circumcision, inappropriately, and they're especially putting pressure, of course, on the Gentile uh, males to be circumcised. In fact, something like this happened in another church or in the churches in Galatia, and Paul had to deal with it. Perhaps that was happening in Colossians. Perhaps that's why Paul mentions it here, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Circumcision isn't mentioned among anything when Paul gets to describing the, the false doctrine that was taking root in uh, Colossians. He mentions some specifics. He never mentions um circumcision. I don't think that's why Paul talks about it here. Instead, I think he talks about it because of something that the Colossians thought about a lot and because of something that I think you probably think about um, a lot and that their philosophy, their empty deceptions, their substitutes uh, for Christ were all aimed at accomplishing but had no power to accomplish. And that is what it takes to put off the corruption of the flesh the sinful flesh that we are uh, born with. And I think that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about circumcision here, the circumcision that's found uh, in Christ. He's talking about a real separation from the sinful nature so that there's a break with it, 
not not in such a way that your sinful nature never uh, tempts you and never wins a, a victory against you, but so that there's a real break, a powerful break uh, with it. And I, I think he's he's picturing that as a circumcision. What is circumcision? What is circumcision? Well, it was revealed to Abraham first. It was given to him for the purpose of keeping track of who's part of the special nation that God made all these promises about. And it was through physical descent from uh, Abraham. And so circumcision functioned just as a marker to mark out at least the males that were part of this nation and to make them different from those who were not part of this promised uh, nation. So it was simply uh, a marker. And yet scripture is very clear that it also had a deeper meaning. It also had a deeper meaning. And let me, just, let me read just some of the passages that make that very clear. Uh, Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Or Deuteronomy 30 about what the Lord will do for his chosen people, Israel, in the end. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 7 talked about uh, foreigners who were uncircumcised in heart as well as being uncircumcised in flesh. And uh, Stephen, when he was being uh, stoned, uh, rebuked those, uh, says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. They were all circumcised in flesh and body, but they were not circumcised in heart and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit. You were doing just as your fathers did. Paul uh, talked about... Um, not he who is a Jew outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he who is a Jew inwardly, and his circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and the praise, his praise is not from men, but from God. So there is a physical circumcision. It had a function. Um, it still has a function, I think, to mark out those who are part of the chosen nation of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as a baby on the eighth day was circumcised according to the custom of the law and then later presented in the temple because he was a physical descendant of Abraham. He's a member of the chosen nation. He is uh, Israelite. And so there's a physical circumcision, but it points to, it points to another circumcision, a deeper one, a radical heart surgery. And you can't do it yourself. In fact, you can't even make a start in doing it for yourself. And the physical circumcision doesn't accomplish it. The physical circumcision does and should mark out one who belongs to the nation, but it doesn't accomplish this radical heart uh, surgery. And so this is, that's the circumcision that he's referring to, that he's reminding the Colossians. You have this, and where do you have it? In Christ. And it's only found in Christ. Don't, don't adopt some kind of substitute for self-improvement when there's a circumcision that you need and you have, and it's only found in Christ. In him, you were circumcised with the circumcision. And here's the way it's described, not handmade, not handmade, made without hands. And there's one word that uh, speaks of that. And that's an important part of this. The, the physical circumcision obviously is made with hands with a very sharp knife. Um, this is uh, a circumcision 
made without hands, made without hands. Uh, usually today, if a product is handmade, it's kind of promoted. You know, this is handmade as opposed to machine made or something that's made on an assembly line. It's made with care. And that's uh, something that makes it more valuable. But in scripture, to be handmade, contrast it with what is constructed by the work of man with what is constructed by the work of the living God. And there's a number of places in scripture where those are contrasted. Uh, false gods are handmade. Idols are handmade. Images are handmade. Even a temple is handmade. The Lord uh, spoke of a temple not made with, or made with hands as opposed to the temple of his uh, body, the temple that was around him. Maybe one of my favorite reference to it is the, the image, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar have had of a statue, something obviously handmade, representing all the kingdoms of the world, and it's crushed by a stone cut out of the mountains without hands. In other words, a, a kingdom that's totally the work of God and not the work of men, and that becomes uh, the final uh, uh, kingdom. You don't want a handmade removal of the corruption of the flesh. In fact, the harder you try for a handmade removal of the corruption of the flesh, the worse it's, it becomes. But you want a removal of the corruption of the flesh that's done by God. And that's what this is. That's what he describes here. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The body of the flesh would be the piece of the skin that's removed in physical um, circumcision, or it's it's really the corruption that clings to us. That's part of our natural born uh, existence that's uh, spoken of, and it's removed by the circumcision that Christ provides. Done. It's done in Christ. God does it, and he does it in Christ. It is offered in Christ. It's found only in a Christ. So circumcision, not, not something that you um, think of uh, right away, but it means a cutting away of the corruption of your flesh. It's a delicate procedure. It's a procedure that only a skillful one can accomplish and only God can uh, accomplish it. So do you remember that this is yours in Christ? whether you're a male or a female, because it's your heart that is uh, 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 circumcised only in Christ. And it's outside of you. It's something that you can't accomplish. It's found in him. You look to him for salvation. You keep looking to him to carry out all the effects of salvation, including this uh, important cutting away of uh, the flesh. So uh, the astonishing uh, blessings that are found in Christ. The first is circumcision. The second, equally vivid, is burial and resurrection. Burial and resurrection. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. How do you kill the old person that you were before you were saved? Uh, the person who uses even the most spiritual things for a warped and selfish purposes. That uses even the most spiritual things to control God, actually, rather than being controlled by God. The person who's lost in sin and trying to get out of it only makes it uh, worse. The person who's lost in an old way of seeing God, not according to the gospel of grace, by which you delight to be near to him, but as a God that you can bargain with, 
in order to give yourself some breathing space to get away uh, from uh, him. And even the most spiritual things that you can think of are found uh, for that. How do you kill this old person that actually, even after you're born again, he keeps on coming back, he or she, this old person and trying to impose uh, his, his ways? Well, that person can only be killed in Christ and it's in his burial and in his uh, resurrection that that person is uh, done away with, demolished in order to be replaced by the new person that you truly are in uh, Christ. So having been buried with him in baptism, Christ's burial was not what killed him. Christ was not buried alive. He died upon the cross, but it was the seal of his death that he was buried, that it was very clear that he um, had uh, died. And uh, this is what our old person is, not just killed, but, and this is very vivid, very vivid, and it draws you away from anything that you have in yourself. You couldn't think of this on your own. It's only found in Christ. Having been buried in Christ, you were buried uh, with him in baptism. The baptism actually refers to our spiritual union with Christ, the, our, our immersion in Christ, of which our, our water baptism is a, a picture of that uh, reality. But the, the reality is we're united with Christ. If you belong to him, you're united with him and especially united with him in your in his death. Uh, trusting in him is the death, uh, is the only way that that old person dies. And then a new person arises out of the ashes, animated by a new principle, the principle of the grace that's found in salvation, nearness to God and love uh, of the same kind that drew you to uh, himself. So in order for you to become new, in order for you to walk in newness, in order if you make progress against uh, the corruption of uh, the flesh, you need astonishing power. You don't just need something that'll help you improve. You need astonishing power. You need something way more radical than anything found in the Colossians substitute uh, philosophy. You need way more heavy artillery than that. You need a burial and you need a resurrection of uh, the new life. And only the working of God can accomplish this. And that's what it speaks of. It's the same as the, the circumcision not made with hands in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And that's the only way that new person can uh, come to reality is through the same power that raised him from the dead. And that's some, that power is something that you only have in Christ. You can't do it for yourself. You can't even start to do this for yourself have this burial and this resurrection according to the working of God, but it's done for you. But notice this. Let me dwell on this for just a moment. It's done through faith, through faith, through faith, verse uh, 12. And I want to pause there. That's important. In which you were raised up with him through faith is part of this process, important part of this process in the working of God who raised him from uh, the dead. These verses, they're full of very vivid action verbs like circumcising, burying, resurrecting, making alive from the dead, forgiving, taking out of the way, nailing, disarming, triumphing, all these uh, very vivid, colorful uh, verbs. None of those verbs are ours. The subject of none of those, the circumcising, the burying, the resurrecting, the making alive, the nailing to the cross, the disarming of the powers is uh, something that we do. None of them are ours. They're all gods because they're things that only he can do. They're things that are accomplished without hands. Uh, all of them. This one action 
stands alone in these uh, verses as the one thing that we do, the one lonely action that we're the subject of this action, and it is faith, and that is key. Why? Why is this uh, included here, trusting in the Lord? Because it's the one action that looks outside of yourself to another. Faith is the one action that looks outside of yourself to another. And so faith is not the cause of this resurrection from the dead. It's too weak to be the cause of this resurrection uh, from the dead, but it is the instrument that's used by God. It's the working of God, and he does it only through faith. This one action that's ours in this whole paragraph of looking outside of ourself to uh, another. And it fits. It fits what only God can accomplish. You have to look away from yourself and look to Christ. So faith is mentioned here in this resurrection of the new person that's ours in Christ. And yet there's a whole world that opens through faith, a world of action, a world of wrestling with God, a world of striving against sin, a world of daily praying, daily struggling, daily fighting, daily falling down, getting back up again. That's the struggle of the Christian life. It's the, it's all contained or it's the door to it is opened in faith because what is done in faith in Christ is done in the power of Christ. And so uh, trusting in him opens the door to all of the struggles in the Christian life. Only what is done in faith is done in the power of Christ. And we only make progress in the power of Christ, not in self. And so unbelief, doubting God, doubting what uh, Christ has accomplished for you shuts you out of that whole world that's open to you of striving and struggling through faith, as well as forgetting Christ. That's what the Colossians had done. They'd kind of put Christ to the side and grasp some things they thought were a little, a little uh, more practical, but they've forgotten the most important thing, which was uh, Christ. So uh, we need to do the same to trust in the working of God and in, in uh, what is found only in uh, Christ. So five astonishing blessings that the Colossians forgot they needed that are found only in Christ. The first is circumcision. The second is burial and resurrection. The third is life from the dead. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, together with uh, him. So uh, Paul speaks of a, a different astounding blessing. It's being made alive from the dead. Um, he doesn't keep these uh, blessings distinct. One spills over into the other. And so he talks about circumcision again. It's when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, those fleshly corruptions that you couldn't get rid of. You couldn't make your own surgery uh, to get out of them uh, from the heart. It's when you were wrapped up in those that he made you alive together with uh, together with him. So notice about this uh, making uh, alive uh, that God has to take all the initiative in the process of uh, salvation. He doesn't say that he made you alive as he describes this astounding uh, blessing. He doesn't say he made you alive when you started sort of stirring towards life, towards God, and then he came along and made you uh, alive uh, as well. Uh, spiritually dead people can't make themselves uh, alive. Uh, so no, he says it's when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's which, which he made you, when he made you alive. And so even the faith 
by which we receive the, uh, the resurrection from the dead, the new life has to be given because he makes us alive when we are uh, dead. Well, we're only alive from the dead because of Christ and in Christ. He made you alive together with him, together with him. We're only alive with a new life because of him. And our new life continues to be bound up with him. Or as it's put in another scripture, we live because he lives. And so this new life, it came to us totally from Christ, not from ourselves at all. In fact, it's when we were dead in transgressions and sins that he made us alive together with uh, Christ. And that new life continues to be found in Christ as we grow in that new life. So if you set Christ aside, as the Colossians were doing, you set that new life aside. If you sideline Christ, you sideline this new life. If you advance beyond Christ, that's what the Colossians were trying to do. You advance uh, beyond this new life. And so Paul reminds them of this new life from the dead, from the dead that they didn't uh, earn or participate in uh, at all. The Colossians forgotten, had forgotten that they needed it. And so Paul reminds them of this new life from the dead. Five astonishing blessings found only in Christ. The first is circumcision. Second is burial and resurrection. The third is life from the dead. The fourth is forgiveness, which is pictured very vividly as a cancellation of a legal bond. And the new life that he's just finished talking about that's found only in Christ is experienced always in view of forgiveness of sins always in the awareness of the forgiveness of sins that we've found in Christ that marks this new life that we have in Christ at the beginning, when you first come to salvation, at the middle, as you struggle in all the struggles of the Christian life, and at the end, when you pass the final test and uh, walk uh, through the river that is uh, death. It's all to be done. We're to be growing in the knowledge of forgiveness of our sins, and that's part of the new life. That's that's an essential part of the new life that we have uh, in uh, Christ. It's not uh, gained incrementally. It's found all at once. It's found in, uh, in Christ uh, himself. It's not uh, something that we think we're working towards as we're progressing in the Christian life. So we say, well, I probably when I get to the end of this, I'll probably be forgiven. I hope. I remember um, listening to a political candidate who was, I know he's a Roman Catholic and he made a comment and I know it wasn't a prepared part of what he was trying to say. It was just sort of off the cuff, but he said, you know, I'm doing the best that I can spiritually. And I'm hoping at the end that God is going to lower his standards for me. And I thought, well, that's so different. That's, that's the philosophy. That's a substitute philosophy for Christ. And I'm sure he thought that was a very humble thing to say. It's really resisting the blessings that are found in Christ, the blessings that are ours in Christ, which include forgiveness of sins. And so as Paul describes this new life from the dead, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And you need to know about it. He's forgiven us all, not not some of them. He's forgiven us all of our trespasses. If you want to grow in the new life, you need to know that you're forgiven all of your trespasses in Christ. You need to be amazed uh, by that. It's It's a portal to open all of uh, the new life to walk in that life, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And Paul wants to drive this point home, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Paul says, having canceled out, canceled out, nullified the, the word that he uses here, the certificate of debt. 
is what my translation says. I don't know what yours says. But what the word literally means is a handwritten document. A handwritten document. And certificate of debt is a good translation for it because these kinds of handwritten documents were documents that codified the relationship between a debtor and a creditor and mentioned the amount or mentioned the obligation, what kind of obligation that it was. And typically these debts were written in the hand of the debtor, the one who owed, would write his own debt. In fact, the letter to uh, Philemon is, among other things, this very kind of a document. It was all sent to the same church at the same time. Um, where is Philemon? Where is it hiding? Um, after Titus. Um, Philemon 18 and verse uh, 19, Paul writes, but if if he, Onesimus, has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. And so Paul's writing a certificate of debt that is the letter. And he says, I'm writing it in my own hand because that was the custom for the debtor to write it in uh, his your own hand. And so uh, this is what we have before the Lord, a certificate of debt written with our own hand. And I think it contrasts with the, the heart surgery, the circumcision that's not made with hands, but this is made with hands. The certificate of debt is made with hands. And I was, I was thinking about it. I was reminded at Christmas time of Jacob Marley with the big chain that he has. And he says, I've made it link by link, yard by yard. He's made it with his own hands. That's the nature of sin. It says that as we sin, Scripture says we're without excuse, without excuse. We make it, every, every, every person makes it in some sense knowing that they're making it, in some sense knowing that they're signing their own doom. And so this certificate of debt, it's the thing that we've made by hand, the thing that we contribute uh, to it. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees, and I think this that, that is a reference to the law. So it's a certificate of debt that's according to the law, um, something, the whole thing is the law, but I think the, the whole thing is something we've made. It's a certificate of debt that's according to the law. Whatever this is, obviously it's against us. It's hostile to us. It's a condemnation to us because it says it twice. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so in Christ's death, this debt that we owe to God it's canceled in a very vivid way. It's it's nailed to the cross. It's killed along with him. It's nullified uh, along with him. Perhaps it makes you think of the charge that was hung above Jesus' head and uh, nailed uh, to him. But it's uh, eliminated in the most forceful way that Paul can think of because that's what it is in uh, the cross. And so this is one of the astonishing blessings that's yours only in Christ. It's the full forgiveness and there's no growth in the new life that's found in Christ apart from awareness of it is this uh, full forgiveness. There's a final astonishing blessing that's only found in Christ. It's public triumph over dark powers. Public triumph over dark uh, powers. And I, it, this is the fifth one. I think there's a reason why it culminates in this. This one is uh, especially vivid. And uh, the final uh, one, he says... When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, or it possibly could be through it, the cross, but I think the idea is the same. It's, it's in Christ and especially in his work uh, of uh, the cross. 
It speaks of disarming rulers and authorities. And uh, these are, we don't know a lot about these, but these are angelic, actually demonic um, powers and um, entities. And uh, we know there's an unseen realm. Paul has talked about the victory that we have over the flesh. He's described it as a circumcision. But we don't just struggle against the flesh. We don't just struggle against our old, what we were, our old uh, nature that's hard enough. As we seek to grow in the Christian life, we're also invading the territory of demonic powers, which are fighting against us, which are working uh, against us. And so uh, the, the Christ's death on the cross is the only way in which these powers are disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities through his cross or through him and made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. What is a triumph? Well, a triumph for us is just like a, like a big victory, but a triumph meant a very specific thing back then. And, and in the history of Rome, um, for those who did some extraordinary service, military service to Rome, they would have a triumph for them. And it's basically a parade, a triumph in their honor. And then they, they had a recorded list and people have found it of all the triumphs that were done in Rome. And it's like a hundred or 150 or 200 throughout the entire history of Rome. And so for, uh, Roman ambitious Roman uh, generals, it was the ambition of a lifetime to have a triumph in their honor and one that few, uh, actually attained to. You had to do a major victory, major service to, um, the, um, the, the Republic or the, or the Empire of Rome in order to have a, uh, a triumph in your honor. But it's basically a parade in the city of Rome and, uh, the general will go and the, the, um, army would go with him. And then in the back would be the captives in chains, the prisoners in chains. And if, if they were really lucky, maybe they'd have somebody important, some dignitary that was there um, being led away in chains at the end of the parade. Sometimes they'd be, or the most important ones would be executed with a public execution there. And it was a, a day off for all the people, a day of rejoicing and gifts for uh, all of the people. This is the kind of victory that we have over these powers only in Christ, only in Christ, not in some philosophy that forgets Christ, but only in Christ. And it's a resounding victory. It's a triumph. It's a public display. In this kind of victory, the enemies are still alive. They're still walking. They're still part of the um, parade. They can yell back to the people or try to do something, but they're already defeated. They're already defeated. They're already um, in uh, chains. So this is the kind of victory that Christ has won over these rulers uh, and authorities that would seek to prevent us from growing in the Christian life, from completing the Christian life. He's made a public display of them, an open display publicly. He's done for them the very opposite of what Joseph was intending to do for Mary. Matthew chapter 118, Joseph was betrothed to Mary and she was found to be with child before they came together. So Joseph being a righteous man, and not wanting to make a public display of her was planning to divorce her privately. Was planning to put her uh, away privately and not make a big dis- shameful display of Mary. And then Angel appeared to him and put him on a totally different course from that. But that's for a moment what he was uh, intending uh, to do. That's not the way in which Christ wants to to what, what he wants to do to these authorities and powers that oppose him. That's not the kind of victory that he wants to grant to us. 
but rather a victory in which they are put to shame publicly. He wants to make a spectacle of them. That's the course of church history with all of its setbacks. The church of church history is this triumph, this public spectacle of those who oppose and your struggle fits into that. The Lord wants to give not just a, a victory to you, but a public humiliation of the powers that oppose you before angels and before men. If you're living the Christian life, According to that kind of victory, you make no compromise at all with the flesh. You don't make terms. You don't meet, meet uh, your flesh halfway or sin uh, halfway. Uh, but you walk, learn to walk in that kind of victory. And it's a victory that's found only in Christ. So the battle is real. The battle is real. We see where we're going in the Christian life, and there's a there's a thicket, there's a mist between us and them. There's a battle that we have to go through, not around. There's a dreadful battle waged, and we have to engage in it. We have to engage in all of the setbacks. It requires all of our efforts. But when it's not when our victory is not found in ourselves, something we bring, but it's found in Christ, not found in any substitutes. Uh, to Christ, but it's found in him, then we go with the confidence of knowing that Christ is giving us this kind of victory, a resounding victory that's only found in Christ. So let me end with this. Let me end with this. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? Who would give any of these things, much less all of these things, to those who've done nothing to deserve it? A circumcision that is a severance, a real severance from the corruptions of the flesh. A burial and resurrection that means a new life, a new kind of life. Life from the dead that we've done nothing to earn. We haven't even participated or initiated it. Forgiveness of sins of all of our sins in a way that is absolute, uh, that we should know about and a triumph over Christ. What kind of love is this? It's the love that's only found in Christ. It's found in the heart of God, and it's given for us to discover only in Christ. What kind of love is this? It's the same love that animates the new life. Actually, all the aspects of our new life that we grow in uh, are, are uh, found in this love and are found in Christ. And you can't find even a whisper of this kind of love outside of Christ. It's all in him. And there's none that's left out. So let me encourage you this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. There's nothing more important than knowing Christ, than knowing God through him, than knowing his power, than knowing his love. And there's nothing left out. And so accept no substitute. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that it's not the work of our hands that we bring to you, but... It's the work of your hands by which you give us all these blessings of uh, severing us from the corruptions of our flesh in a way that uh, is being worked out with setbacks, and yet it's permanent. It's a permanent severance uh, from the things of the flesh, a new life in which we bury the old life in the tomb of Christ, and we rise with him in newness of life uh, and newness of a, a love of which we had not known unless we knew uh, Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have, that our sins made by hand, each one are nailed to the cross and uh, are, we're given a forgiveness of all of them. And then this, this uh, wonderful victory that we have in Christ that we're so apt to forget about, a victory over all the powers of evil that are arrayed uh, against us 
and they've been dealt a death blow in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Pray that you give us courage and faith to walk in this. Pray that you give us a strength, patience to apply every effort in this battle, knowing that we've already won the victory in Christ. And pray that you'd remind us of all these things as you present your promises to us in this special way at your table. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.